0: Good. Okay. All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I think we're just about ready to get started. My name's Maureen Conway. I'm uh, Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm really delighted to welcome you all here today for our conversation about uh, the fight for 15, a right wage for working America. Um, and uh, today we're going to have a conversation in uh, three parts, actually. So. Um, uh, so first, I'm going to spend some time uh, talking with David about, about the book that he just wrote um, and what's going on sort of in the world of uh, improving the situation for workers and how workers are participating in that. Um, and then we actually have a great opportunity to uh, hear from people who are on the front lines of doing this, people who, for whom these issues are the most immediate and who are really uh, actively trying to create change in their own workplaces. Um, and then we're going to have a conversation with all of you. So, uh, so that's kind of our agenda of things. There will be a little bit of shuffling of chairs and moving of tables in, at certain points, but um, uh, you can just take a little opportunity to, to stretch maybe and uh, we'll, we'll move on at a, at, as fast as we can. Um, okay, so that's uh, the first part of my logistics remarks. The second part of my logistics remarks, do please silence your phones. Um, But do please tweet. Uh, Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, uh, And I should also mention, when we do the Q&A, we are live streaming and recording the event, and so we will be passing mics, and if you do, please use them when you ask a question. That is super helpful. Um, Okay, Uh, and and we're going to try to conclude uh, the Q&A just a couple of minutes before 1.30, so that you have time to uh, buy books, David will be signing them, as well as the workers whose um, uh, experiences are referenced in this book will also sign the book if you like. So, uh, so that's a great opportunity, so we hope that you will all avail yourself of that. Okay, um, so I just want to say a few words uh, to get started To you know, in terms of framing the conversation. In the Economic Opportunities Program, uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about how people can connect to work, and that's because work is uh, the source of opportunity in, in, in the U.S. Work is generally our answer to uh, the question of poverty. How do you get out of poverty? You get yourself a job and you work your way out of poverty. Uh, we structure policies to encourage work. We d- have everything from cash assistance for single parents to food stamps that has work requirements our largest source of social assistance is the earned income tax credit which by definition requires work so work is fairly central and we have this idea that if we connect people to work and if people can build a work experience that they will be able to get to a job where they can support themselves and hopefully a small family without reliance on public uh, public assistance and uh, unfortunately we have averted our eyes from the growing phenomena of poverty wage work, and the fact that 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 scenario, that trajectory, uh, just is not possible for large and growing numbers of people. Um, recently, these issues have come to the fore. We've had uh, the issue of inequality with things like. Uh, um, uh, Thomas Piketty's tome, Capital in the 21st Century, Becoming a bestseller, and Occupy Wall Street really put the issues of inequality on the map. They've grabbed the headlines. Um, The U.S. has experienced tremendous economic growth over the past several decades, but the income and wealth resulting from that growth has accrued to a relative few. Um, Some might argue that the inequality is okay. Uh, It's okay as long as everybody has an equal chance, but we know that that's not true. We know that uh, economic mobility is low, much lower in the u s than in many other european countries and it's, and it 's been that way for for a long time. We know that um, uh, the uh, circumstances of your birth and uh, often associated with your zip code are are, are all too determinative of, of what your outcomes in life might be. Um, we also know uh, uh, that <clears throat> some might say that it 's okay if we have inequality as long as people can earn a living uh, from work, and, and as I was mentioning earlier, we know that that is also not true, that so much of work now does not support uh, the basics that people need to get by. Um, I do need to take a pause here because we do have, I will say, we had some great economic news in the, in the last week. We finally, finally, after a period, after uh, a long period of wage stagnation saw incomes rise, and, and in particular uh, among middle and lower income households. So, um, so that was great news, um, but it's not enough because they still are earning less than what they earned before the recession. Um, they still are not earning enough to, uh, to even support themselves, much less a family. So we're in a grave situation. Um, and I just, you know, in terms of thinking about what does this mean for ourselves and our future, one of the statistics that, is, that really stuck with me is the fact that um, over half of public school students now receive uh, free and reduced-price meals, right? So over half of public school students qualify. This does not bode well for our future to have so many children growing up in poverty and in limited circumstances. Um, and it's not because their parents don't work. It's because their parents don't earn enough to even buy food. Uh, So today, uh, we're talking about the fight for 15 and what do we do to raise wages. Um, And before we start, it's worth noting a few things about uh, who's earning $15 or less. So first of all, um, 42% of workers earn less than $15 an hour. I'll give a shout out to the National Employment Law Project, who did a study showing that. so it's a pretty common thing. 42% is a lot. Uh, these workers are disproportionately women, disproportionately black, disproportionately Hispanic. Um, and these jobs are likely to be in a service industry. And the service industry is a large and growing uh, sector of our economy. And the occupations that, people, that uh, p- these workers occupy are large and growing sources of employment. Um, so this is a real challenge that, that we need to confront in terms of what does work pay. Um, and nobody better talk about it with than David Rolf. So I am so happy to have David here. Uh, I was so glad to see his book and to uh, get the chance to talk about him. Uh, for those of you who don't know David, um, he is an organizer extraordinaire, he's organized more people into uh, labor unions than really kind of anybody out there organizing these days, and yet uh, he's also one of the people who's um, got the most to say about, you know, sort of, this is, is the labor movement really going to be the answer anymore, or what needs to happen to, to create change? Um, uh, he's an incredible strategist, an incredible thinker, he's written an incredible book, um, and it's a book that really is, you know, it's an important book both for sounding the alarm of what's going wrong in the world of work, but it's also a really optimistic book about how uh, people can get engaged and really look hard at the problem and come up with new solutions. So we're really glad to have David here. Thank Thanks you, for David, for joining us. Um, and let's just start, uh, start with the current state of play. Uh, so this isn't just the fight for 15. We've, you've had some wins. So uh, where do we have 15 and, and what do things look like right now?
1: Sure. Um, so the first time that anyone mentioned $15 as a actual goal. It really occurred three times in November of 2012. So less than four years ago, when a group of Brooklyn fast food workers walked out on strike, about 200 people uh, took to the streets protesting not one specific employer, not one labor contract, but protesting poverty wages in the fast food industry demanding $15 and a union. Uh, That same month, a colleague and collaborator of mine named Nick Hanauer gave a speech to the Democracy Alliance. I won't go into the details of how he came up with this, but he sort of got mad about something he'd heard about Democrats not being in favor of nine or $10. And he got on stage and says, you said to hell with it, it ought to be 15. And then, uh, (laughs) you know, those two events were not in any way connected. And then also (laughs) unconnected was a, uh, the publisher of a journal called American conservative, a, uh, California billionaire, Silicon Valley guy named Ron Unz, who had run against Pete Wilson in the California Republican primary in 1994 from the right, published an article calling, making the conservative case for a $12 to $15 minimum wage. Those things all happened in November of 2012. By May of 2013, we'd had the first six strikes in the fast food sector, demanding $15 in a union. By, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about SeaTac, but by uh, Uh, November of 2013, the first small city had done a $15 living wage law uh, covering 6,000 workers in the airport, uh, airline, hospitality, and transportation sectors uh, in SeaTac, which is the airport city that serves both Seattle and Tacoma. Um, And then Seattle became the first city to do a broad-based $15 minimum wage the following May, one year to the date after the first Seattle fast food strike. Today, there are 20 million Americans on a path to $15, covered under $15 minimum wage laws, mostly, of course, in New York and California, since those two states adopted statewide policies, but also a number of other eastern cities, a number uh, you know, both uh, I mean, Seattle was the first large city, but then now we've got debates going on in Baltimore and in Cleveland, and a number of union contracts, even in other states, settled at $15. So Johns Hopkins, before Baltimore was considering a $15 minimum wage, settled their union contract at $15 minimums. Uh, the home care contract in Massachusetts settled at $15 minimums. Even the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a non-union and very anti-union employer, it's also the largest private sector employer in Pennsylvania, just uh, established a $15 internal minimum wage. So today, as a result of this work, there are now 20 million Americans and growing who live under some form of a $15 minimum wage policy. What remains, obviously, is that the the demand for a union that those fast food workers articulated is still unmet Uh, and, and, you know, probably won't be met in the sense that we're talking about old school 1935 era enterprise bargaining unions, but where the real aspiration isn't to replicate the worst forms of 20th century industrial policy, but rather to build a strong, stable, permanent uh, uh, membership organization that has the ability to force companies to say yes when they, they want to say no.
0: Great. great. So let's talk a little bit more about CTAC because CTAC was really interesting I- in that it, 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 it's not about a union, right? It was about a ballot measure and it was about organizing sort of uh, n- less within the context of a firm and more within yeah. the context as citizens of a particular yeah. community. So, so talk a little bit about it why was re- that was yeah. the strategy and what happened there. Well,
1: it really was a hybrid because uh, in, in, the year two, in the year 2010, at the depths of the Great Recession, An organization called Working Washington, which is essentially an SCIU uh, labor community partnership, uh, knocked on 100,000 doors in South Seattle and South King County to talk to working class people about what was going on in their lives. We weren't talking to them because of where they worked, whether or not they were registered to vote, even whether or not they were a citizen. We just we talked to 100,000 people about the economy. And one of the data points that popped up was the large number of people in these communities that were working full time at the airport but living in poverty mm-hmm. and depending on public assistance of some sort and struggling with often multiple jobs to make ends meet. And so originally, CTEC was in large measure a union organizing mm-hmm. effort. There's, you know, over the course of a generation, working class jobs at airports went from being solid middle class jobs to being poor jobs. So Congressman Adam Smith, uh, the the congressman who represents CTAC, his dad worked as a baggage handler for United Airlines in the 70s, made the equivalent of $60,000 a year in today's wages with a health plan and a pension. That's no one's idea of luxury. But it's a solid middle class job. And he was able to send his kid to college and to law school. And you know, a generation later, Whoever handles the bags for United no longer works for United. They work for one of many of an alphabet soup of no-name subcontractors that bid against each other in a race to the bottom on price, which then forces down labor costs. And if one company says they have to raise wages, they can easily be replaced by another. So that became the dominant economic ecosystem at most American airports, including at SeaTac. And in the book, I talk about some of the workers who... You know, a a guy who was an honorably discharged U.S. Marine who did a total of five tours of duty in the Middle East and in Kosovo and other places, and who was commuting 45 miles a day to a minimum wage job putting fuel in jets. And when he and his co-workers showed up at the public agency, at a public hearing at a public agency to talk about their working conditions, they were forced out by security because they weren't allowed to bring hazardous materials into the boardroom those being the, the uniforms that got soaked in jet fuel uh, doing their job. But they were told uh, as a condition of employment, they had to take the, the, those uniforms and launder them themselves at home. Now go home and look at your dryer and see the warning label that says don't put any gasoline or fuel ma- soaked materials in here, right? because it could blow up your house. Um, so those workers started forming unions but quickly ran against the buzzsaw of 20th of 21st century American labor law, which has since, you know, at least since the 80s, been more of a union prevention statute than a union facilitation statute. And this is n- true nowhere more than in the airline industry where significant percentages are actually covered by the Railway Labor Act, which is a 1919 statute that presumes that all of the railway engineers will meet all of the other railway engineers in stations across the country and therefore we will know each other and could form a union together, that works if you're a pilot. It works if you're a flight attendant. It does not work so well if you're a jet fueler who cannot afford to buy a ticket on a plane. And so the law essentially required to get a union, workers to form unions at the same time with the people who work for the same companies in Honolulu and Portland, Maine, an impossible task. So workers ultimately decided to write labor standards into the law. And CTAC, like many, many cities and states on the West Coast, has relatively easy access to the ballot. If you get a certain number of signatures on your proposed law, you can qualify for the ballot. And that's what happened in CTAC. We qualified a ballot measure that raised wages to $15 immediately, uh, provided for paid sick leave, rights required employers to offer full-time work to part-time workers before adding more part-time workers, prohibited hospitality, employers from skimming off tips and pocketing them. And I uh, had a private right of action for enforcement. Mm-hmm. So essentially, some of what might have gone into a labor contract was written into law, qualified for the ballot, and won by 77 votes on election day in 2013. Now, you understand that, you know, why is, why is there an election in 2013? Because throughout much of the country, municipalities and even states depend on picking low turnout elections where the majorities will not vote in order to preserve the, you know, Power of a, a local ruling elite. SeaTac is a majority person of color, majority immigrant city, governed entirely by conservative white people, um, because they hold their primary elections in August of off years, in odd numbered years, and and typically uh, fewer than one in five residents actually turns out to vote. Um, that's part of what we had to change to pass the SeaTac measure, uh, and knocked on you know ten thousand doors forty thousand times. Uh, in order to turn out enough people to pass that measure with seventy-seven vote margins. Yeah,
0: but one of the interesting things I thought in that CTEC story was also the role of some of the small business owners in the community and the uh, and and sort of the different uh, the sort of yeah. the different stories ahead of yes. time from the business community and the different right. stories afterwards. Right. And so it would be yeah. interesting to check well, out that well, so
1: there were two, th- you know, Tech w- if anyone's ever worked on a nursing home union organizing campaign, you will recognize that's a very obscure thing to have worked on, but if you have, <laughs> uh, you will know that on the day before the election, the workers fall into two camps. They're either wearing the union button or they're not making eye contact with the union organizer, <laughs> right? And that's what SeaTac that's what really became in the months leading up to the election. No one was neutral. And the... Uh, no one at the doors was neutral, we wouldn't even count you as a yes vote, going door to door if you didn't if you weren't willing to put a sign in your yard or put one in your window, because that was the shirt, sure, that was a telltale sign you weren't really with us. Um, and the business community was sort of the same way. So on the one hand, you had what you sort of expected, the small town chamber of commerce, saying, Oh, this is this is going to kill us, we're all going to go out of business, we're going to lose these jobs, it's going to hurt the people you intend to help, you know, like yada, yada, all of the things, all of the myths charitably, myths, that get repeated anytime anyone talks about raising labor standards. And then you also had some other businesses that did different things. So a guy named Don Liberty ran a sports bar, runs a sports bar called the Bullpen Bar and Grill. It's about a mile south of the, of the airport. It serves a lot of airport workers and a lot of working class residents of SeaTac who come in for a beer and a sandwich and to watch the game of their choice. And Don Liberty, who was actually a Republican, figured out uh, that if people had more, if airport workers had more money to spend, he was likely going to get more customers. <laughs> um, and so he became a very um, enthusiastic public spokesperson for for proposition one, the, the the measure. Then you had the guy who was the general manager at the SeaTac's only, there's a lot of hotels in SeaTac because that's an air, airplane, airport city, but mostly it's the kind of hotels where you're trying to It's not very, you know, it's not luxury hotels. It's places where pilots and flight crews sleep. It's places where if you have an overnight layover, you just go across the street. It's not generally a, a luxury hotel town, but there's one exception. There's one luxury hotel that's used for conferences and for higher end business travelers or people on international layovers. And the general manager of the hotel became the spokesperson against the campaign. And he would host the vote no committee meetings in, their, in a private dining room at the hotel where they'd serve prime rib and red wine at lunch. I don't know what the Aspen Institute's doing here with these sandwiches <laughs> and
2: <laughs> bottles of water.
1: Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they would talk about what was going to happen if this thing passed. And the, and the hotel said, well, we're, you know, the CTAC measure only applied to larger employers. And so they said, Well, that's it, we'll just lay off enough people. So we don't qualify as a larger employer anymore. We'll we'll cut down the number of rooms. Um, Then the guy who ran a a master park franchise, said he would replace he was quoted in the press as saying he would replace all of his employees with kiosks. Um, Well, um, probably the most shocking thing that got said, and we, we it's probably not shocking to anyone here that we occasionally had good information, get reported out of those committee meetings. But one time, they got the general manager of the hotel said, you know, if this passes, I won't be able to offer my employees shift meals anymore. In other words, the free meals that restaurant workers often get before or after their shift. Um, and someday, that's the only meal they get.
3: Uh.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, but there's a happy ending to the story. Uh, the uh, the Master Park franchise guy, after uh, he threatened to replace all his employees with kiosks, hung a big, after the measure passed, he hung a big sign on his fence that said, now hiring $15 an hour. Uh, Dana Milbank for the Washington, with the Washington Post called him and said, what's up? And he says, well, it turns out my customers actually want customer service after all. My employees are happy campers, these days. <laughs> uh, direct quote. <laughs> uh, the, the, and the hotel, uh, the investors met right after the measure passed. And because they were going to not be earning as much of a as much ROI per room night, based on increased labor costs, they decided to double the size of the hotel and add a, a new wing with two presidential suites and a, and a spa, so that they could get more business and, um, you know, realize the same projections that they'd had the same sort of going into the uh, to the business. So uh, in general, I mean, you know you know uh, some businesses fought for two years through litigation. Those were the unhappy ones who now have to write tens of millions of dollars of back paychecks mm-hmm. to make people whole for the money they didn't get when they when the initiative passed because it was sustained through every court of the land um, and is now the law yeah,
0: great um, so so you go from SeaTAC, which is a relatively small town, and it was you know the airport is kind of dominant there yeah. to Seattle, which is a big town yep. and you got a lot of different industries and a lot of different folks. So, sort of contrast sort of what was different about Seattle in terms of the players and the process and sort of how that Very all and different. you can't really yeah. knock on every single voter's door. No, you
1: can't. Um, <laughs> so, it, despite being only 15 miles apart, they were a, a huge study in contrast. You know, SeaTac is an inner ring suburb in decline, I mean, they lost their video store to become a pawn shop. Their grocery store had become a goodwill. Um, And, you know, good jobs, like Adam Smith's father's had in the 70s, had become bad jobs. And that was the story of SeaTac. Seattle's a boomtown. Seattle is, you know, every day we create, every day 50 new people move there, 35 new jobs are created, and only 12 new housing units are brought on the market. So we are now dealing with an upwards price spiral in uh, housing costs that, uh, you know, producing the kinds of rents that people in, San Francisco, but not than Honolulu, maybe, but not that many other places are used to experiencing. Um, and it's a very fast growing city. Um, you know, we, there's a two year wait to buy to, to lease a construction crane in downtown, uh, because there's so much new construction going on. The, um, and Seattle's an incredibly progressive city with a very strong labor history. The one general strike in US history occurred in Seattle in 1919. It didn't end well for the strikers, but it did occur. Uh, and, the, and so you had this very progressive city with a strong labor tradition, combined with these incredibly, um, with these very strong economic growth trends that generally were benefiting those who already had the most. And you had you know one of the most successful strikes in the first wave of fast food strikes. 14 restaurants actually had to shut down for the day something that wasn't true in every city. Um, Thousands of workers and supporters marched uh, on May 29th and 30th of 2013. And, you know, this was happening right as the CTAC campaign was also happening in the same media market. So although the the the, the strategies were different, in one case, it was a ballot measure, in one case, we were trying to get a law passed City Council. In one case, it was strongly connected to a traditional union organizing drive. In another case, to a more 21st century sort of postmodern union organizing drive. in in fast food. Um, Ultimately, those two campaigns were financed by and run by the same people at the at the top level. But the strategy in Seattle was very different. First of all, we wanted to turn the elections, whereas CTAC actually was a literal referendum on 15. In Seattle, we were trying to create a virtual referendum on 15. We had municipal elections that year, including a mayor, uh, the mayor's race and half the city council. And we the coalition essentially chose to make the mayor's race a single-issue election on the subject of 15, and did that by timing the strikes and uh, the sit-ins, the boycotts, the civil disobedience uh, with the key uh, sort of the, the key elements, the key moments in the municipal elections. Um, also by doing things like having a televised debate on low-wage worker issues mm-hmm. that every major candidate attended and you know had to go on TV and explain how they would live on the state minimum wage to a, a, in, a live and uh, studio or a, you know, in the studio and public audience. The um, and so by the time we got to the election, which was in SeaTac, prop one on the ballot in Seattle, a mayor's race and a city council race. Um, public opinion was already strongly with us, we didn't know quite how strongly until a little later, we only won by 77 in SeaTac. But in Seattle, a much more progressive city, Uh, you know, what we really, it wasn't just that a pro $15 mayor got elected, which we kind of thought was going to happen. What no one saw happening was the election of a single issue uh, city council candidate who was a member of a British based Trotskyist party, (laughs) um, beating a three term incumbent for, um, for a city council seat. And if something was gonna if something shook up the political establishment in Seattle, (laughs) I mean, this person, her name is Shama Sawant, she's now sort of famous, you see her on TV, because she's the only, I think, pretty much the only socialist holding many major office in the US. Um, And uh, no one saw that coming. Like wasn't even the far left of the labor movement didn't support her campaign. It was we everyone sort of figured the Democrat would prevail. And um, so it was sort of a shock to the system. And so when uh, marchers marched 15 miles in December from SeaTac to Seattle to symbolically bring the $15 minimum wage fight from one city to the next, half the city council was there with like handing out cookies and tea when marchers approached City Hall Plaza. And that became, listen, it was not all kumbaya for the next four months, but the mayor had pledged, if elected, to appoint a citizen task force, a stakeholder task force really, to negotiate how to get to 15. And so I was the, I was the co-chair, and, the, and along with the guy who, with a guy who's a very prominent business leader in Seattle, who is whose family owns the Space Needle and who owns the Sheraton Hotel and a bunch of hospitality businesses, um, and a large employer of low-wage workers. And we, and this, a task force of twenty-four people essentially spent four months negotiating, in what felt very much like collective bargaining. It just didn't wasn't between one employer and one union it was between all the employers and all the unions and a m- number of community organizations and political stakeholder groups as well. And the uh, the posture of the business community was quite different because they'd seen what happened at SeaTac. They'd seen what happened with the city council and mayoral election and the Seattle business community, which is, you know, our chamber of commerce famously disaffiliated from the U S chamber of commerce <laughs> because they didn't like their politics. Um, and so I mean, it's still a chamber, but, um, but they, you know they negotiated in good faith, and for four months we, you know, spent our evenings and weekends uh, uh, in City Hall uh, bargaining. The, what would be the parameters of the $15 wage policy that was then ultimately supported by 21 of the 24 members of the commission and by a unanimous vote of City Council.
0: Yeah. Great. So I want to I want to switch a little to I mean because so so those have been a couple good environments to get some of the things done. Um, uh, but you know, you sort of pass a law, and then there's then there's uh, enforcing it. And in in twenty fifteen, the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division brought in over two hundred and forty six million in back wages for over two hundred and forty thousand workers. Um, we have challenges with compliance with current labor law. I'm glad to see Sharon Block here today. Um, uh, and we know resources also for enforcement are limited, right? So that's you know um, an issue. So are you seeing both? challenges like as yeah. it spreads to other jurisdictions, what are your concerns about enforcement and are you seeing anybody think about what are some innovative sort yeah. of strategies that can use resources as well? Yeah,
1: so prior to, prior to passing a $15 minimum wage law, Seattle had actually passed a criminal anti-wage theft statute and back in the summer of 2013 when we were doing the fast food strikes, one of the things we were protest one of the specific protests that we conducted was a protest over the fact that three years after the wage theft law had passed, no one had actually been prosecuted under it. Now, that either means that every fast food employer, every call center, every residential construction contractor, every janitorial firm operating in Seattle is completely unlike all of the others that operate everywhere else, or it means that we weren't enforcing the law very well. And it turns out what we had was a complaint-based top-down enforcement system that would require workers to walk into a police station with a documented case in order to get any charges brought. Now, if you've met any fast food workers, um, or any janitors or many call center employees or domestic workers or residential construction workers, what do you think the chances of someone who's not working with papers, wanting to walk into a police station to complain about their employer are? Approximately zero. And what do you think then the chances that they've done contemporaneous documentation, lined up their <laughs> witnesses, have their pay stubs all here, you know, like none, right? So, so even, but even when we had skilled union representatives assist workers with the filing of cases, we really couldn't get the police to take them because they sort of said, this isn't our job. What do you want? You want, you want a claim number for your insurance policy? Great, um, like if you had your car prowled or something. But, um, it, it, and this has been a common problem, right? Is that top-down complaint-based systems tend to reward, tend to, to enforce the law only in sectors which are both high violation and high complaint. Um, law firms and academic departments are notoriously high violation, low or high, low violation, high complaint. Mm-hmm. Right? If you looked at the EEOC caseload, you would quickly conclude that sociologists were among the most discriminated against people
2: <laughs> in the country, and you
1: know, that fast food workers weren't. Um, Guess what? Sociologists are aware of the EEOC and aware of how to file complaints at a far greater rate than fast food workers are. Um, So what we have, and I think the emerging practice is, is that the two very important principles in enforcement are co-enforcement, which is where worker organizations and community organizations are given a role in education, outreach, uh, navigation, case management, and legal clinic work on behalf of low-wage workers. and and the principle of uh, directed investigations, where enforcement agencies proactively look at businesses in high violation sectors. Um, It's just like, for example, why the IRS IRS might want to audit Donald Trump, might not want to audit, I don't know, Howard Croft, or Chris Chafe or, you know, Tanika Aiden. The, uh, The facts of the matter suggest that there's probably more to find, if you audit Donald Trump. Um, if, you wanna, if you were going to look in Seattle at where to look for violations, you would probably want to look in kitchens before you would want to look in biopharma laboratories, you know, hypothetically. Um, so those I mean, the two principles. One is to actually empower low-wage workers and people in their communities to be agents of enforcement, not literally handing out tickets or issuing fines, but to educate workers to be able to do like, peer-to-peer work on knowing your rights, on knowing where to, how to access enforcement, including through trusted community organizations. And so that's a, an important strategy that we're using in Seattle, and San Francisco uses, a, I think, a, an earlier variation on it. You can see it at work in the pure private sector in places like the Maintenance Cooperation Trust Fund in the California janitorial industry or the Coalition of Amokley Workers in the mm-hmm. Florida tomato fields or the, the Workers' Defense Project in the Austin construction industry. And that's where, essentially, it's a bottom-up enforcement. And, and, you know, a restaurant owner, a friend of mine, explained this to me very well. He said, well, you know, my guys don't take any crap. And if I go and ask them to do something that they don't think they ought to do, they're going to tell me about it. Well, that's perfect, because that means no one ever. there's never a complaint, because there's never a violation, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, then the second principle is this idea that you go where, if there's smoke, there may be fire, so go where the smoke is. If you were running a fire department, you would not equally uh, send fire crews to every building or to random buildings, you would presumably s- uh, send ones to buildings where there was smoke coming out of them. Okay. And so those are the two things on, on enforcement, I think, that are emerging best practices.
0: Great. Okay, so I have two more questions for you that we're going to try to make uh, a, a little quick. Um, uh, just, uh, But I just want to sort of extend from, because um, uh, I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> I know we have, we have more to do here. Um, uh, and I, I actually wanted to ask this trust question, right? So, so one, it's been commented that the U.S. sort of lacks – actually, Anne-Marie Slaughter said this last uh, – this past summer at the Ideas Festival, right? We don't have a labor party in the U.S. There's not really a party that represents workers. Um, and then I look in the Edelman Trust Indexes uh, showing sort of this big divide in terms of trust in institutions, in, in government, in business, in the media, in uh, nonprofit organizations. Uh, there's a big difference between sort of what they call the informed public, which is basically people who earn in the top 25 percent and have gone to college and who are regular readers of newspapers, and what they call the mass population um, in terms of their, their trust in institutions. And the U.S. is the highest among developed countries with a 31 percentage point gap in trust among the, those two groups. Um, have you found this lack of trust in the workers that you're organizing? and? and how they feel about institutions. I mean, even maybe how they feel about unions and their trust within unions. Um, And do you think some of the things that you've been engaged in, um, in terms of, uh, you know, better enforcement of laws and getting their voices heard in elections and getting their voices heard through ballot measures, do you think that that can help rebuild trust?
1: Uh, Yeah, trust has to be earned. And if most American workers no longer have trust in our major institutions, it's likely because those institutions let down American workers. We've experienced a 40-year freeze in wages. We saw over a generation health care costs transferred systematically away from companies and governments. Now, I mean, there's a change now with Obamacare, but for for a period of decades, health care costs transferred onto individual consumers. We replaced student grants with student loans and made debt-free college education a thing of the past. Imported third world wages, outsourced manufacturing, we privatized, globalized, detaxed, deunionized. We got rid of pensions in the private sector, we, which means that the average American 55 years or older has only enough retirement savings to pay for $100 of post-retirement, $100 a month of post-retirement income. We replaced old Jim Crow laws with new economic apartheid for Black and Brown America, m- uh, meaning that most African American and Latino families are two paychecks away from bankruptcy. And we said that that when women doubled their workforce participation between 1977 and 2012, from 37 to 74%, the net take home pay for the bottom 90% of income earning families would be $0. I wouldn't trust the people who did that to me either. (laughs) And so I I think that if there is a lack of trust in major institutions amongst American workers, it's a well earned lack of trust. Because we went from an arc of history that, that actually always through struggle made life better for workers every generation for 200 years to throwing the whole thing into reverse. Um, now, I do think that my experience as a union organizer is that people who actually, and I'm sure Tanika will talk about this when she's up here, that pe- once people have experience of taking action and winning and making change, it's an incredibly empowering experience. and. Um, you know, uh, I think it's much easier to trust in institutions that you have an experience of helping to change and helping to steer. I think in a democracy, no one should expect that they're going to be the only ones steering major institutions. But having the experience of having decisions you make and actions you take together with coworkers or people in your community have an impact is definitely something that creates a feeling of ownership uh, in the broader societal institutions.
0: Great. And the last question is just, um, I mean, in the book, and we talked about even how it didn't work out so badly for the uh, businesses at SeaTac, but you know, there's always this, uh, somehow the sky's going to fall if we raise wages to to $15 an hour. And so often this conversation revolves around like it's going to kill jobs and businesses can't survive. But it rarely uh, seems to say, well, um, how, how will workers and how will families survive? If we don't raise wages, so I guess my question for you is, is is you know, um, to what degree do, does anybody else ever ask the question? Well, what happens if we don't raise wages, and and what's the fallout there economically, yeah. politically, socially if we can't manage to raise wages?
1: You know, I talk a lot about this in the book. If people want to jump to chapter seven, which is kind of the rebuttal of all the arguments against minimum wages, feel free. The, you know, in. The head of the department store trade association predicted that if Congress passed a law prohibiting children under 16 from working more than eight hours a day, that all department stores would go bankrupt. That prediction was made in 1913. Uh, Now, one can imagine a world of the future where all department stores go bankrupt. It will have far more to do with e-commerce and Amazon than it will do because of child labor laws. The, in 1937, when Congress was passing its first federal minimum wage, the head of the American Publishers Association demonstrated his ignorance of both economics and classical history by predicting that America would fall like ancient Rome if we, like ancient Rome, got into the business of <laughs> dictating prices in the private sector. <laughs> oh, that's why. Ancient Rome. Uh, and, and the, you know, there are a set of specific myths. I I call them I I think in some cases lies, but myths, that you know, minimum wage increases cost jobs, make businesses close or relocate, and hurt the people they're intended to help. Those have been repeated now so often, like all the other parts of trickle-down economics, that one believes, or is led to believe they're written into the founding documents of the country. The problem is it's totally wrong. And if you look at every minimum wage increase that's happened in US history, The correlation tends to, they tend to correlate more with periods of growing employment than with shrinking employment. If you look at specific states and cities and compare them to surrounding states and cities in actual, not in theory, but in actual practice, you see things like most of the time when a city raises its minimum wage, its employment and its wages grow faster than its surrounding areas, not the other way around or that if a border town, like say, Trenton and Philadelphia, or Spokane and Coeur d'Alene, one state raises the minimum wage, the other holds it steady. Do businesses cross the line? No, workers cross the line. Mm-hmm. Guess it's a lot easier. Um, so what happens when you don't raise the minimum wage, I think we see. right? With, I mean, with 40 years of wage stagnation in America, we saw depressed levels of consumer spending, slow economic growth, more frequent recessions that were more structural in their nature, and um, not just people like me, but people like, or institutions like Standard & Poor's, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank have all issued reports in the last four years pointing to America's high relative rates of poverty, low relative wages, high, low levels of intergenerational social mobility as reasons for slow and inconsistent economic growth and as long-term threats to our economy. Um, one can sort of think about Japan and Germany because they're an interesting case study. They were both uh, occupied by American armed forces after the Second World War, and American generals functionally played the role as the dictator of the country. Um, General MacArthur imposed on Japan an American-style enterprise bargaining system that uh, meant one union, one company at the smallest possible worksite level to bargain labor standards, and without any sort of regional or sectoral bargaining power, And that's what they did in Japan. Eisenhower, meanwhile, helped the Germans resurrect a somewhat older system of regional and sectoral bargaining that set minimums throughout all people who worked for a type of employer within a geographic region. You know, today, Germany has the world's largest middle class, we are number 27. Japan is in the fourth decade of a recession. So who would you rather be? Would you rather be Germany with a high wage, a growing middle class? And by the way, even though their automobile workers make twice what ours do, they manufacture and sell twice as many cars. Um, So, the the problem is ultimately not that they have broadly shared prosperity, a stable and growing middle class and healthy unions. Germany has proved, when Angela Merkel was asked why she opposed a minimum wage for Germany, she said we don't need it, we have collective bargaining. Um, So, I think it comes down to which would you rather be. We have so far made a choice, we want to be more like Japan, with weaker social programs, weaker wages, weaker unions, and a smaller middle class. And you know the 40-year war on the Amer- American middle class has in fact paid off well for those who financed it because the rich in fact got richer, the percentage of GDP harvested by the top 1% of the top 10% grew while the middle class shrank and for the first time ever is no longer the largest economic class in America. And we went from having the world's largest to the world's 27th largest middle class. So I think we have to make a choice. Do we like the path we've been on for 40 years? Because if we, th- if we think we would have voted for that in 1976, let's keep doing it. And let's say let's keep shrinking the middle class, hurting workers, shrinking wages, eroding benefits, getting rid of social safety programs, and moving more and more people into your on-the-own economy. The problem is there's only so many yachts you can sell to rich people. And as Nick Hanauer points out, billionaires only need the same number of pants as everybody else. So if ultimately you depend on making, transporting, or selling a good or a service to someone who doesn't only need to buy private jets and yachts, then, you, you, then the consumer demand side, which is 70% of the American economy, is gonna hurt without some upward stimulus. Great, yeah.
0: thank you. All right. We are- So now we get a chance to uh, chat with some people who, as I mentioned before, for these, uh, find these issues most immediate. So uh, right next to me, uh, I'm going to uh, try to say names properly, is uh, Ridwan Ax- Giley, Axman Gele, oh, thank you, uh, who is uh, an airport worker. Uh, next to Ridwan is Crystal Thompson, a uh, fast food worker and mother uh, and a member of Working Washington. And next to Crystal is Tanika Aiden, a home care worker and a board member of SEIU 775. Uh, So thank you all for being with us here today. And um, first, I just uh, was hoping you could tell everybody sort of briefly about your job, where you work, kind of a little about what you do and how long you've been doing it. And Tanika, let's start with you and just kind of work down. All right.
4: Good morning. First off, um, thank you, Aspen Institute, for um, asking me to be here. And uh, definitely thank you to my president, uh, David Rolf, who's done so much for home care workers in Washington State um, and Montana. And my name is Tanika Aden. I have been a home care worker for 15 years. Um, So home care workers, we go into people's homes who are disabled um, in some type of way who need a little bit of extra help, um, say like a a war vet who lost a limb, we go in and help them live their day-to-day lives so they can stay at home as long as possible. Um, So I originally went to school to, I got my degree in communications and then the economy fell out so the type of jobs I was looking for I wasn't able uh, to get into. Most home care workers don't start out uh, with the goal of being in home care. Um, but um, at around the same time, a family member of mine, their health declined, so I went into home care work. It was very hard at that time to find a home care worker because of the way home care was set up in Washington State, um, so I got into that. And I actually became an activist. Um, Originally, when I was in college, I w- was uh, working at a department store, I was a member of a union. It was a very bad experience. Um, so I didn't want anything to do with the labor movement at all. Um, so the same, All this stuff was going on at the same time. When I started being a home care worker, the, members were, the workers were organizing to form a union. I wanted nothing to do with that because of my bad experience. Um, but they formed the union and things started to really improve for home care workers. I didn't really know how that was happening, but I thought it was great. So when they came back to me eight years later and wanted to talk to me about the union, I was a little more receptive. And um, so that's how I got in. They invited me once I got in there and saw the way that people who take care of our most vulnerable were being treated. I wanted to do something about it. And um, I started traveling and talking to other low wage workers and letting them know how they can get out of their situation.
0: Great, thank you.
3: First off, I would like to thank the Aspen Institute for inviting us here, and David Wall for empowering us workers and starting the Fight for 15. Without him, none of this would would have been possible. Um, My name is Crystal Thompson. I'm a single mother of three wonderful boys. I was born and raised in Seattle, and I've worked at Domino's Pizza for the past seven years. Um, And um, I'm also involved in working Washington, we helped set and organize the fast food and coffee retail workers strike in the city, and um, we've also um, been to Olympia, it's the capital of Washington, and we've also um, spoke with legislators and city council members and shared our <coughs>
0: stories. Great, thank you. Great one.
5: Okay. Thank you. For, first of all, thank you all of you. This is my first time to come to Washington D.C. So it's nice.
0: <laughs> okay.
5: Yeah, and thank you for David. I also, <laughs> here only in to all people be, all be are attending for this meeting. My name is Ridwangele. I was born in Somalia. I came from Somalia in 2009. I started my career in 2009 in Dallas, Texas. I moved up in Washington, SeaTac in 2018. So I worked SeaTac Airport, Air Survey Interline Batch under. I've been working at that village since 2018 and it's yeah. wonderful
0: great so um, tell me and I'll, I'll sort of go the other way this time so Rudwan, when did you get involved with trying to advocate for change in your in your workplace and and what what inspired you to get involved in sort of the vote for yes
5: uh, yes I get involved with when I met for organizer who's working for this movement I see a lot of my work worker my team, are struggling their life, basically, inside. I see the companies making more money. They have more profit while the employees are struggling for inside. So that will be pushing me to get involved for this movement. So I go door by door. I go, I do for phone callings. I meet them. my community, my people, my family, to say, came and fought for yes. Mm-hmm. And I see that time, it was a great time to make people therefore to change that situation. So people are getting like minimum wage, which not affect, they cannot pay their bills. Mm-hmm. And Washington is one of high standard basic life in US. So I was sharing for emotional story for my workers. And they have no time to get their families because of their billing. The job are not fit for to get his family and to get his job, which is basically everybody like to get work and to take for his family. So that was be uh, pushing me mm-hmm. to take for this movement.
0: Great, um, Crystal. What what got connected you to working Washington, and and um, yeah, why did you get in, involved with that?
3: Um, well, initially. Um, a working Washington organizer had um, came to our job and was um, asking for signatures, and um, was also um, talking to us about a meeting about the minimum wage and invited us. And, um, so I thought it sounded kind of interesting, so I went, and um, and then um, we started. The first thing we got into, we did the w- we did the w- wage stuff, um, protest and. Um, we did some boycotts, and then it led, and then from there it led to the fight for 15, and um, trying to raise the minimum wage, and um, it's a struggle. I mean, I've had the same job for seven years and not getting a raise, only when the minimum wage went up, and just watching, you know, my family and coworkers struggle, um, trying to make ends meet and raise their families.
0: Yeah, and can you say a little, because we were talking earlier. You know, um, when they first asked you to participate in a, in a strike or something, how did that feel?
3: Um, I was really scared. Um, I didn't want to lose my job and I wasn't very informed of in my rights and um, the second time we went out, I believe um, there was a lawyer that came and spoke to us workers and um, informed us of our rights and stuff and let us know that we would not lose our jobs if we went out on strike, and so I went um, out on the second and the third strike.
0: Yeah, great, great, and uh, Tanika, um, you already talked a little bit about, you know, sort of your good and bad experiences with Union and what connected you back to to SEIU, but um, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of what that's what that's meant for you, and sort of how that's um, changed your workplace, and also just has anything has you know have you found that any of your work in this way has um, uh, has gotten an interesting reaction from any of your coworkers or family members or, or other people about sort of your involvement with the union?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, growing up, you know, I heard about you know if you work hard, um, you can have this American dream, you can have your piece of the American dream, but. You know, looking around, I was seeing you know, a lot of home care workers are working 65 hours a week just to be broke and still can't pay bills. You know, I see a lot of people with health conditions who can't even afford any kind of medical help, can't afford to go to the doctor, can't afford medications, work in two jobs. You know, a lot of, I know a lot of people who have to make that decision every day on whether or not to pay their bills or whether to eat. You know? so, um, but yet it's been proven that America is making more money today than we've ever made before. You know, so it kind of got me thinking, where, where are all those wages going? Why are there so many people out here struggling? Um, you know, so what really kind of inspired me to, to get involved was the fact that you know, that's not right. You know, there, the wealth is there. We should you know, share in that wealth, like we did back in the day you know, when we had a big labor movement. Everyone shared in the wealth. And because um, you know, I think that all people should have respect and dignity on their job and be able to pay the necessities. Um, one instance I can remember when I first, you know, got active, um, I went on a campaign out in California, and I was working with a group of workers who were just trying to form a union just to have the basics. I mean, the, the living wage was insanely low, and this is California. You know, it costs like fifty bucks to get a piece of gum there. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, but the one of the very first houses I went to, there was, I mean, the, the level of poverty there was. Surprising to me. I'm a military brat, you know, shielded from a lot of stuff. I didn't grow up in extreme poverty and there was a woman there, her husband had um, Died, she had six children and she was taking care of his mother um, Working as a home care worker and they're doing fast food and they were living in a studio apartment and the the, I mean The smell just the whole situation made me upset Enough to be like, you know, what? this is not right. You know, everyone you guys we got to stand up and change this This is not right. And when I first got involved in the union, um, you know, people didn't know what I was doing. Like, why are you doing that? You know, it doesn't really affect you. You're only in home care part time. You know, those people don't have anything to do with you, but, you know, I can't just sit by and let someone in that situation be like that. Just work themselves to death, knowing that they can change their situation. You know, just especially in Washington, seeing what has changed, you know. Kind of like David said, once we get you in there and you see what's going on, you, you really just can't sit there and, and not do anything. So that was um, just getting out and talking to the workers really is what uh, inspired me to, to do what I do.
0: Great. Okay. We're going to ask one last question and then we'll have uh, David come on back up so uh, we can have some conversation with you all, but just uh, briefly, is there is there one thing, um, is there one thing that you think the audience here, one more thing that you think that you haven't mentioned yet that you think the audience here should understand either about your job or about your work to advocate for change in workplaces like yours? And um, Rudwan, I'll just start with you and, and we can just go down the line.
5: Okay. I would like to see that we continue this kind of movement until we see all the workers for uh, to change their life. To get what they deserve it. Mm-hmm. I like to continue. I like to see everybody get what you deserve to get it. Uh, and if possible, I would like to see this movement will come internationally, if they go for another country, another country, something like that. That's what I'm sharing for the islands.
3: Okay. Okay. Um, I believe that all workers deserve to make a living wage. Um, all working people should be able to afford to live and raise their family in the city where they work, and not have to rely on public assistance. Um, we all have a voice, and workers need to be informed of their rights. Um, and uh, we need to keep the fight up and make it grow. Um, we need to have the. We need to try to get the minimum wage up for the whole country, I believe
4: so I remember when the fight for 15 first started, I had a lot of people come up and say, you know, why should we pay those fast food workers, or are just flipping burgers, right, they're just delivering pizza, why, did, why should they get a, a living wage? Um, and I was kind of like that too, I'm like, 15, that might be a little bit too much. But when you really think about it, I'm out here advocating for low-wage workers to stand up for themselves and get living wages. They work just as hard as anybody else. You know, it shouldn't matter if you're an airport worker or you work at a hospital doesn't matter if you're a home care aide or you're a nurse it doesn't matter if you work in fast food all people like my sister Crystal here said should have dignity and respect on the job and should um, be able to still have that American dream I still believe in the American dream you know so I, I just think that all they, all workers um, deserve that dignity and respect and I was at a conference a couple days ago where I got to hear from a leader in the movement his name is Terrence Terrence Wise and he was talking about how the CEO of McDonald's makes $9,000 an hour. And he has been in fast food for over 10 years. He works two low-wage jobs and barely makes minimum wage, can barely pay his bills. When we have a racial, I mean not a racial, <laughs> uh, inequality like that in our nation, something has to change. If there's enough wealth for all of us out here and we should all share in it. There shouldn't be you know, the workers who are actually making the work not being able to pay their bills while CEOs make, that much money. They can still have a whole bunch of money, and the workers can still have some money too, and we can all share in the dream.
0: Yeah. Great. Okay. We're going to ask David to come on back up here, and um, uh, and if you want to raise your hand, we do have some uh, mics to be passed, so we can try to get a mic to whoever would like to ask the first question or, um, uh, over there. Please introduce yourself. Yes, my name is Dan Morrissey. I work with the New Zealand Federal Credit Union. Um, my
6: question is, uh, in the areas where minimum wage or living wage has had an impact, one would expect tax revenues to go up as well. Um, is that actually happening? So, in other words, uh, an economic benefit
1: for the jurisdictions that have this? Yeah, you uh, you would expect that. I don't have any data on it. Um, so maybe someone else in the room does because i just that was not it was something i predicted would happen in my book and I, it was something that ron Uns predicted would happen when he wrote his article back in 2012 and he sort of said you know the conservative case for a higher minimum wage is raises tax revenue without raising marginal tax rates you know lowers dependence on government programs and provides more stimulus more a bit more customers for business but i haven't actually seen Real time data on what's happened so far in the earliest cities that have done significant increases. So, in other words, Seattle, San Francisco, LA. um, Perhaps simply because, you know, even as we speak today, the New York and California laws are less than a year old. um, So the answer isn't really, I don't know, but someone, I don't know if someone here from one of the, Great research institutions that we work with, like NELP or EPI or CPB or CAP or Roosevelt, maybe you should take that on and figure right. out the answer.
6: So my name is Eddie Eiches and I'm uh, an officer in the American Federation of Government Employees of Union, Federal Workers. And I, your whole sheet, the whole sheet of paper on at least the front of Fight for Fifteen has only one ref, one even mention of unionism and it says looking beyond traditional unionism and my question concerns of course we do it too in the AFL-CIO you know we spend we have now working in America we have all types of mechanisms to try to raise uh, the minimum wage but we have really no way of financing these movements because a lot of these movements do not end up uh, you know in traditional unionism and so I'm my question my first question is that my second question is that Almost all of these movement, uh, the movement successes are in, uh, are in states that are not right to work for less states, and I'm wondering whether these movements even exist in Mississippi or Texas or 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 other places like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, great questions. So, I went to see Andy Grove once when he was still alive, long after he retired, um, and I sort of said, you know, here's our problem. Our problem is that we've got declining rates of overall unionization, and for a whole number of reasons, which probably are far too complex to get into, I think this was the subject of an entire other talk I did on this stage at one other point a couple years ago, but for reasons that are complex, no likelihood that America's 1935 era collective bargaining law is gonna resurrect itself and result in strong unions again in the way that my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my mother all had strong unions. Um, And that would be fine, except that there's no democratic capitalism on earth that's built and sustained a middle class or even a democracy itself without some form of a robust labor movement. Um, And Andy Grove said, uh, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to think I can solve this problem for you, which is not what you want to hear from the founder of Silicon Valley, Um, but, he said, I have a, he said I have two pieces of advice. One is that really you have to think about your outcomes very rigorously and think about um, and get you have to get used to not thinking about current organizations or businesses, structures, leaders, laws, practices, or strategies. Just figure out how to isolate your outcomes and solve backwards from that. And if that means having to cast aside all that is comfortable and familiar, then that's where you have to go. And the second thing you said is I have a suspicion you're going to end up needing to fund the projects that everyone else wants to bury. Uh, and those turned out to be, I think, very wise, uh, that was turned out to be very wise counsel. Um, as I sat in bad traffic for three hours between Palo Alto and Berkeley after the meeting, I puzzled through what uh, you know, what are the outcomes we care about. Well, the truth is that when unions did their job well in my great grandfather's day and my grandfather's day and my mother's day, uh, they they were powerful enough to raise wages and benefits faster than the rate of inflation. So it helped, on balance, helped create a middle class. Number two, um, they were large enough to touch tens of millions of Americans directly or indirectly. Even, for example, famously IBM would just wait for General Electric to settle their union contract, they'd offer a nickel more as the non-union premium so you know, a bunch of unions were in effect bargaining for IBM workers, even if IBM was never, you know, never signed a contract. And then thirdly, they had a revenue source, the, thir- you know, the issue you raise, that was not, at least not immediately dependent upon philanthropy or government. Um, now today, unions are, not, are no longer powerful enough to raise wages in most sectors of the economy. They no longer touch tens of millions of people And and our revenue source has been revealed to be very fragile. Um, Right-to-work laws can do certain things. Republican governors, like Scott Walker, can do other things. Um, And this is in part because we built a very fragile, enterprise-based system in America. We don't have good labor laws, and we don't have great unions Um, because we have a system that is optimized for the industrial economy of 1935. It rewards. fighting over crumbs rather than systemic change. Uh, It rewards, uh, you know, know, low-level conflict rather than high-level collaboration. And that's why we are more like Japan than like Germany in our system of industrial relations. I don't think it has to be this way, but I think that all of the labor movement resources that are going into trying to bring back the good old days are throwing good money after bad. And what we instead ought to be doing is trying to figure out the next Set of platforms or experiments. And we don't listen, I don't pretend we have the answers yet. What I can say is that somewhere in the country or in history or around the world, uh, workers' organizations have engaged in regional and sectoral bargaining. They've engaged in benefit administration. They've engaged in work distribution. They've engaged in worker ownership strategies, in co determination strategies, um, in labeling, certification, and standard setting, standard enforcement strategies in addition to enterprise bargaining strategies. So any time you take six of the most obvious and widely practiced forms of worker power off the table for an entire labor movement, you're gonna be weakening its its prospects and its possibilities. And we also only have one revenue source, which is collective agreements with employers who agree to deduct dues. And we don't have any other revenue sources, uh, which is also makes us uh, anomalous amongst other labor unions globally. So, um, I think that it's unlikely that most of today's unions survive. Our collective bargaining system of 1935 will almost certainly not survive, and if we want to have an American dream and a middle class, we better figure out what replaces them. Uh, I'm curious, from a political perspective, whether you're.
5: Donald um, in light of their uh, various views, and should there, and if so, should there be more that's being done in order to ensure uh, protection of, uh, of
1: your activities and organizations? Okay,
0: yeah. I want to take another question just so that we can make yeah. sure we get plenty of questions yeah, in. He had an
1: unanswered one. I'm sorry. I forgot you had a second one, too. So. Sure.
6: Uh, hi. Uh, Chris Rugaber, I'm a reporter at Associated Press and was looking at a story on the uh, impact of education and and how that's changed in uh, our economy. And one thing I noticed was an interesting fact that neither college or high school educated workers are necessarily likely to be in in a union, but at this point a college educated worker is twice as likely to be a union member as a high school educated, which could reflect changes in the public sector and so forth. But is there anything else that you (coughs) see beyond that in terms of how uh, the status of high school educated, college educated, how does that change and how that <coughs> might have, might impact their likelihood to be in a union or okay. to join you in your group? Yeah, thank you. Okay. So one,
2: I, thought I saw one more hand, uh, right back there, okay. oh, Good evening, my name is uh, James and what I did not hear is about our educational piece with, for the fight for 15. We have a problem where sometimes we tell people that $15 will raise people out of poverty. But there, there should be a step or a movement to educate people how to change their lifestyle. Because $15 alone, without changing the behavior, will not lift anybody out of poverty. Because for as long as I remember, my father was union persons also, you cannot just throw money at property. We've been doing this since people have been walking around. So, what we've been doing in Baltimore uh, through uh, nursing homes is have an educational piece how to get your credit scores in, in, in check, how how to, to do sit down meals, how to buy in bulk, because it's how the because the importance of getting your credit score, then you can buy a house that are paying high rent. You can do those particular things. But just pricing people that $15 will get you out of property, and I don't want to make mistake that people get bad at unions.
0: Okay, okay, so we have uh, so, the current president, oh, oh, okay, you wanna add your question I
2: thought
1: okay. I saw one more, but maybe not. Do, no. No.
0: Amy, do you want to add your question? Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll come back. So we have, um, uh, we have the current presidential election. We have a question on um, uh, the education uh, status of union versus non-union members. And then we have a question about um, uh, worker education and that $15 by itself isn't enough that people need to know sort of basically how to manage their money um so, and 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 any of you all can comment on these questions too. I just want to say if you would like to jump in at some point, please do. do you want all right, David, you start. They are going to have you the, answer all the questions. The gentleman in the front
1: row also had <laughs> asked about right to about experiments and right to work state. So I'll try to do all of these quickly. I think that the education status it really is about public versus private sector that the that, that um, the private sector unionism has crashed from close to 40% to close to seven just under 7% of the private sector workforce, while public sector unionization has remained relatively steady. Um, and in general, public employees do things like uh, they're social workers, they're transportation engineers, they're correction officers, they are eligibility workers, they hold a wide variety of uh, jobs, they're healthcare professionals. Um, that, te- that on balance are tilt more towards college-educated professions than not, whereas the majority of private sector union members traditionally have been high school or educa- and or military-educated production workers and or construction workers who got their pr- skills through a union apprenticeship program. And so generally speaking, um, you know, you're looking at two different eras of unionization and two different sectors of the economy, which I think probably explains most of that, uh, that disparity. Um, the the I don't think anyone would James I don't think anyone would say that 15 is the only solution. Um, we need to do a lot about jobs. We need to do a lot about rewriting the employment contract so it's relevant in the 21st century. The social contract so it's updated for the 21st century. I mean we del- I mean most women now work outside the home, and we never even had a national conversation about child care, elder care, or family leave. I mean how insane is that, right? So you sort of look at the set of policies and the set of structural supports for workers and working class communities, wages is just the low hanging fruit. Then everything from the way the banking system works, the way the elections are financed, to the criminal justice system, to immigration reform, would all need to go into a package. If you really wanted to solve for the permanent creation of a robust and powerful middle class, wages is just the easiest thing to do. Uh, Trump versus Hillary? Yes, 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 yes. We SEIU is, uh, yeah. uh, is putting a ton of resources—people, door knockers, phone callers, volunteers, staff—all uh, over in all the swing states. Not all over the country because they wouldn't do much good in either Washington or Montana, uh, where uh, I hang my shingle. But in general, um, SEIU specifically and the labor movement more broadly is—you know—I I, I said on a different stage the other day. You know, I'm sick of hearing. Every four years, someone says this is the most important, or every two years, this is the most important election of our lifetime, and I'm really, really sick of hearing that every two years, but this time it's actually true. <laughs> um, Montana has a, a current governor who supports you guys. Yes, he does. Uh, and, uh, and I just wonder whether you doing what you can in Montana. Of course we are. Steve Bullock is a good friend of uh, workers in the labor movement and a great governor. I think he's gonna win re-election. Um, okay. Uh, okay. You're
0: right. yeah. Last the, question? Oh. And then oh, yeah, on the well, right I'm to sorry. work, and
1: then on the right to work question, there are, there's only one large union that's actually figured out not only how to survive but how to truly prosper in a right to work environment, and that's the Culinary Local 226 of Unite Here in Las Vegas, and they do that first of all, Las Vegas is a very specific economy, um, with that is uh, you could replicate specifically uh, anywhere else. Secondly. Um, They have control of the workforce supply. In other words, they're engaging in one of these other strategies beyond mere enterprise bargaining that allows them to win over the hearts and minds of workers at a very early stage in their career and to be incredibly value added to the employers by being able to provide skilled, trained workers for for hiring. Um, But there are two other experiments in right-to-work states that aren't being done by unions that I think are really important to look at. One is the coalition of Immokalee workers in the Florida tomato fields. This is, an, this is an industry where there was slavery a decade and a half ago, where, uh, there was, where rape was common at the workplace, where people not, where wage theft was dominant, predominant, where people would have their papers, their immigration papers stuck in a safe by the employer. They'd live in bunk beds in metal canisters or trailer homes and they wouldn't get paid for their work. Um, but a decade and a half later, Walmart began paying $10 an hour to the tomato pickers who work for sub who work for growers and have no direct relationship to Walmart before Walmart was paying $9 to its own associates because of the work of this organization called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers that used a non-collective bargaining form of worker power through purchaser pressure and boycotts to incentivize the upstream purchasers of tomatoes to insist on a fair food label for their tomatoes that could only be gotten if the uh, if the growers pay, not only set, only adhered to, to certain standards that were set by a workers' organization, but actually then paid an arm of the workers' organization to come onto the job site, verify the standards are being adhered to, and educate the workers. Something very similar is now happening in the Austin and Houston construction industries being led by the Workers' Defense Project, which has got a Better Builders program, sort of modeled off of the Fair Foods program. Um, and these are two examples of you know, places where you couldn't where the the politics of the state don't let you use government to help you because the governments are red and anti-union. And where um, so they're not favorable labor laws or labor policies. Traditional strike activities are useless in these very porous, uncredentialed labor markets. You don't need a special license to pick tomatoes. And in Texas, you don't really need anything special to work in the construction industry, where they don't even require workers' compensation insurance because that's the kind of place it is. but they nevertheless have begun to figure out how to raise standards, how to exercise power, and how to get paid for doing it through a non-collective bargaining market-based mechanism. I think those are very uh, important signals from the future.
0: Great, I'm I'm sorry. sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry, we are actually at, at time, and, and, and I just wanted to say a, a couple of things that I didn't say before. Uh, one, since he's mentioned the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and uh, Nick and Ranans a couple of times, I want to say uh, Nick and Ranans talked about uh, minimum wage in our very first Working in America session in uh, March of 2013. We also did host the Coalition of Immokalee Workers last fall. Um, And you can find all of our previous sessions on our website, as.pn slash working in America. Please take a look and please stick around, uh, buy a book, sign a book, uh, chat some more, but uh, I think we have to close the formal part. And please join me in thanking our panelists for a great conversation.